Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Great that you could join us again this morning. We are in Acts chapter 21. We're going to come there in a moment, but let's just, let's just pray first. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. And all we want to pray as we come to your word now that you would soften our hearts to receive it. May you speak to us. May we listen and may we apply it to our lives. We ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Over the last few months, Rachel, my, my wife has, has been doing a lot of sewing and she can take fine threads that you could, well, easily just break between your fingers and when, with the help of her sewing machine, she can take those two threads that can be woven together through pieces of fabric to become remarkably strong. And she's created some incredible items of clothes, bags, cushions. And what's interesting is that, that when it's done well, you don't even notice the very thing that holds it all together. The thread. Today we are in Acts 21 and, and as, we, as we read I, I want to encourage you to look out for some important threads that run through the events of this chapter. Threads that actually we can so easily just overlook. If you've been listening to our series in Acts you will know that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem we have been following his journey through the eyes of Luke and we have been allowed to observe some of, of the significant visits and, and conversations along the way. In this passage that we're looking at today, Paul and his friends are travelling around modern-day Turkey and then they will head down the coast of modern-day Israel before arriving in Jerusalem. Acts 21 verse 1 says this, after saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day, we reached Rhodes and then went to Patara. And Paul has to tear himself away from the Ephesian elders because he loves them dearly. So from Miletus, he sets off to Kos, then to Rhodes, and, and, and then to Patara. A journey that takes probably about three days, but it would appear that Paul does not feel comfortable travelling on the local coastal ship that stops in every port. After all, he is in a real hurry to get to Jerusalem. Such is his commitment to the work of Christ, so he makes other plans to travel there more directly. Verse 2. There we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. Paul, along with his friends, embark on this voyage, a voyage that's probably about 400 miles. Of course, even this ship needs to make some stops along the way, so they stop over in Tyre. Verse 3. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and, and landed at a at the harbour of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We went ashore, 
found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed and said our farewells. Then we went aboard and they returned home. This would have been Paul's first contact with the believers here. Although rather ironically, it was very likely that it was because of his persecution of the Jerusalem believers that actually this church began in the very first place. The church in Tyre was a small congregation, there are not many believers here, but, and also it would appear that there's no synagogue in this town. However, Paul and his friends are able to find the local Christians and, and they stay with them for a week until the ship unloads its cargo and presumably takes on some new cargo. At the end of the week, Paul and his friends depart and it's, it's really touching to see how these believers have come to love Paul, even though they've only known him for, for one week. And their love for Paul and his friends is just vividly displayed as they gather at the beach to say their goodbyes. Verse 7 goes on. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Tolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters instead for one day. The next day we, we went to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we could not persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. At Caesarea, they, they, they all stay at the house of Philip. Now, he, he's one of the original deacons that we first met back in Acts chapter 6. He's also an evangelist and he's been in Caesarea probably for about 20 years, give or take. He's made this his headquarters. And you need to remember that Philip was actually a really good friend of Stephen. If you remember Stephen, the guy who was martyred. And don't forget it was Paul who had been responsible for Stephen's death. He, he had not necessarily picked or physically picked up any of the stones, but he... 
he was the one who was calling the shots. <laughs> so this must have been a really interesting meeting. What do you say to the person who's been responsible for the murder of your friend? But actually there's no hint of any animosity or, or tension here. It would seem that, that God had brought about complete healing. However, while Paul rests in Caesarea, the prophet Agabus comes to give him yet another warning message from God. Paul and Agabus, again, they are no strangers. About 15 years earlier, they, they have been working together in famine relief, in a sort of famine relief program in Judea in Acts chapter 11. So, so they would have certainly known each other quite well, yet Agabus delivers his message in the most dramatic of ways. He takes Paul's belt, he binds his hands, he binds his feet, he, he tells the apostle that this is what is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. So just like the believers in Tyre, the believers in Caesarea, beg Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You, you, you can imagine the discussions that are going on. Paul, Paul, why do you need to go there? Let somebody else go to James and to the other Jerusalem elders. Paul, you don't need to go there personally. But Paul silences them. He tells them not to be so upset and, and although he's very aware of how much they they love him he reminds them that he is prepared not only to be bound but also to die if necessary for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ his commitment to Christ Jesus overshadows everything else But I think we still need to ask the question whether Paul was right or wrong in making this trip to Jerusalem. Should he have gone? Or is this just stupidity on his part? And even though I am sure that we would all consider Paul to be a great apostle, he's still a man and, and, and therefore he's still capable of, of getting things wrong. So, we can't assume that every decision that Paul makes is necessarily the right one. After all, Paul seems to be repeatedly ignoring multiple messages and warnings that have been prophetically spoken over his life. Also, some 20 years earlier, the Lord has commanded Paul to, to get out of Jerusalem because even back then the Jews wanted him dead. Paul has already written to the Romans about the dangers of in. Judea for him. He shared these same feelings with the Ephesian elders, so he's fully aware of the problems that he's, he's going to face. However, on the other side of the discussion, the prophetic warnings could be interpreted as a word from God to get ready rather than a reason not to go to Jerusalem. In fact, Agabus does not actually tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He only tells him what to expect when he gets there. So, so when it's true that Paul has mostly avoided Jerusalem up to this point, it's also 
true that he has returned there on a number of occasions to to bring financial help and famine relief in, in Acts chapter 11. We, we, he went there to attend the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 18, he seems to refer to visit to Jerusalem at the end of a second missionary journey. Alongside all of this, there were also God's prophetic words through Ananias in Acts chapter 9, where Paul is described as God's chosen instrument to take his message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, the prophecy went on to say that, that God will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And what is certainly true, in the months that will follow, this prophecy will be fulfilled. He will appear before kings and he will suffer, all because of Paul's commitment to make this trip to Jerusalem. So if we, if we, pull, if we pull all these thoughts together, I, I think it is very difficult to imagine that Paul deliberately disobeys the revealed will of God. His friends might not like it. In fact, they don't like it. But Paul seems to believe that despite the pain that he will endure, God's will in this moment is that he should go to Jerusalem. Verse 15. After we packed our things and left for Jerusalem, some believers from Caesarea accompanied us and they, they took us to the home of Nathan, a man originally from Cyprus, but one of the early converts. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. So as Paul sets off on this final stage of the journey to Jerusalem, a distance about 65 miles, he doesn't go alone. Because a group of believers from Caesarea travel with him. That This journey would have taken them at least three days on foot, maybe a little bit faster, maybe about two days if they have some animals with them. And I'm sure they had lots of fun along the way. They, they, they would have enjoyed fellowship, enjoyed each other's company. They would have shared stories, I'm sure, of God, of what God was doing in and through them. It, it must have been a great encouragement to Paul to have friends alongside him as he faces the uncertainties that lie ahead of him in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem itself, the city's crowded with pilgrims. But once again, Paul and his friends stay with a local Christian, Nasson. He's one of the early disciples who lived in Jerusalem, who had been visiting Caesarea. He's a man who's gifted with hospitality. And we have seen many more like him throughout this journey. And just, just like so many others, his love and his commitment is a great blessing and, and helps Paul to, at, at such a strategic time in his apostolic ministry. And that Luke doesn't give us really much information about the first meeting that they have with the church leaders in Jerusalem, apart, apart from saying that James and the other leaders receive them warmly and they seem to be really glad that Paul and his friends are able to make the journey there. 
And Paul has brought a gift with him from the churches that he has visited along the way. And, and we can assume that that gift would have been truly a great blessing to the church here in Jerusalem. And as we've moved through these verses, as we've, we've followed Paul as he's, he's travelled from church to church, I wonder, if been, have you been able to pick out the two beautiful threads that have flown out of these stories? They're seen in the lives of the individuals and the church community as a whole. And, and, and as they are woven together, they hold everyone together. They, 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 create, they create a wonderful picture of the church. A church is not just about buildings. In fact, it was not really ever about buildings, but about community. One of those threads is very simply this. Love. It is this expression of love. Now, you will have noticed that everywhere that Paul goes, he stays with Christians. Hospitality is simply assumed. We saw it in Troas, in Miletus, in, verse, in, in chapter 19. We, we see it here in Tyre, in Caesarea, and in Jerusalem. And it's not just because Paul is well known. This was not some special treatment for Paul. This was the norm. And I want to challenge you. How willing are you to open up your home? I grew up in a home where we would regularly have people over for dinner or even a time staying for a few days, sometimes longer. Family, friends, missionaries, faith mission, evangelists all stayed in our home, sometimes for weeks at a time. If there was a visiting speaker at church, they would come to our house for dinner. As a, as a young person, I really enjoyed meeting these people, hearing their stories, excited about what God was doing, amazed at their love and their commitment, even though very often they were facing some challenging situations. My mum and dad always made sure that the door of our home was open and mum particularly would make sure that no one left our house feeling hungry. Everyone was well looked after. You know, at the time, I, I thought this was just normal. I thought this was simply good manners. But of course, it was much more than that. And as I got to understand more of what the Bible teaches on Christian hospitality, as I read stories of the early church, like the ones we've been reading this morning, I began to realise that my parents were simply living out and modelling what it means to serve the body of Christ what it means to be the church. And it was done naturally. It was not out of a sense of duty, but with a genuine love and joy. Now, I, I know in these strange days there are limitations at the moment, but it does not stop us from being creative in the way in which we reach out to others. There, there's a real challenge to express love and care in these days that, 
that of course will vary from place to place and and so for the church entire they, they, they showed their love by the entire church coming to a beach to see Paul off in verse 5 it's, it's the equivalent of, of a whole church seeing a missionary off at the airport and love often means breaking into our routines in order to get alongside someone else. It can be as simple as planning a walk in the park or praying with a friend in, in the open air or taking some food around to a family or or maybe to someone who lives alone, is that you can be creative in this. You are the church. And in these days, it's become increasingly clear when we're not able to get into our building and that the church is a beautiful thing because the church is a community of people that's not limited by location, or by situation, but as a community that needs to love, love, truly love one another. And I want you to begin to think what it means, what it looks like for you to be woven together into a tapestry of love. Now, I use these words deliberately because it's, a, it's, the, it's an illustration that Paul uses when he writes to the church in Colossians in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. It's this idea of being woven together, this tapestry of love. He goes on, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And of course, this love is birthed out of knowing Christ, out of relationship with him. This idea of being tied together in love is so needed in these days. In fact, arguably it's needed more in these days than we probably ever have before. And, and, and these strong ties of love, they lie at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a second thread that runs through these stories And this is this expression of commitment. Have you seen it? See, Paul has already, already knows that his visit to Jerusalem is going to be dangerous, going to be difficult, it's going to be hard. Yet despite some very precise warning messages that are very personal, that are very powerful, given about the dangers of going to Jerusalem, and, and even though his friends are worried about him because they care for him so much and they don't want him to go, Paul remains determined to keep going. You see, Paul had devoted a good part of his third missionary journey into collecting a gift for the Jews in Judea. This was a really 
practical way for the Gentiles to show their love and their oneness with their Jewish brothers and sisters and, and, and to thank them for sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. But behind all of this, there is a major problem that is surfacing within the church in these days. And it was threatening to cause massive divisions among the church. And Paul seems very aware that what is, what is starting under the surface was actually becoming more and more visible Ever since the Jerusalem conference, trouble has been brewing. On one side, we have the Jewish extremists, and they want the Gentiles to live like Jews, to follow the law of Moses. On the other side, we, there are those who agree with Paul, and that the gospel of grace is not based on following laws or rules, but on faith in Christ alone, and that God's grace is the only one true foundation of Christian faith. So wherever Paul ministers, there were also extremists who were really trying to hinder his work and even wanting to steal his converts. And so this is a serious situation, and Paul knows that he is part of the answer as well as part of the problem. But he cannot solve the problem by ignoring the situation or even by sending someone else to represent him. He has to go to Jerusalem himself. His commitment to Christ and his love for the church compels him to do this. Therefore, although Part of Paul's expectation in giving the gift to the church in Jerusalem is simply to bless them, to help them through this financial hardship. It's also, it's also a way of strengthening the fellowship between Jew and Gentile. It certainly explains why Paul is so determined to get to Jerusalem and to face whatever comes against him. He wants to build up the church. He wants to bring glory to the name of Jesus. And he is committed. He's committed to this. I'm sure that during these times, Paul has been reflecting. And particularly, I'm sure he was reflecting on Jesus Christ. Particularly thinking of Jesus' commitment when he, he presses on towards Jerusalem. Despite knowing that his journey is going to end up at the cross. And Jesus spoke to his disciples on many occasions. And just like he did in Luke chapter 18 verse 31. And he says, he says we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, however, he will rise again. And there is a sense in which Paul is walking in the footsteps of his saviour. And some may say it is foolishness. And his friends just don't like it. But actually, this is wholehearted commitment. He 
has a selfless allegiance to Christ and to the church. Ray Boltz sung a song that perhaps just should be the echo of each of our hearts. And the song the song sort of tells the story of a father who's been arrested for his faith. It, it tells of this young son who's encouraged by his father to pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Listen to the chorus of it. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb with all my strength. See, the church matters to Paul. He's willing to give his life for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that we're not likely to have to face prison or even death for the sake of Jesus, at least not at the moment anyway. (laughs) But you are called to face challenges and to make sacrifices for the sake and for his name and for his church and you like Paul you're called to a wholehearted commitment Christ and his church is more important to Paul than his life the truth of the gospel is more important to Paul than his life. The the grace of God is is more important than Paul's own life. And and what is interesting is that Paul's commitment to Christ is not separated from his commitment to the church. In these days, there is this tendency to live independent of one another, And I want to remind you this morning, I want to tell you this morning, this is not biblical. It's not the way it's meant to be. We are called to live in Christian community together. You are the church. We are the church. And you, you must allow these Threads of love and commitment to Christ and to the church to be woven into your life and and, and allow them to drive you forward. So how are you going to respond to this today? What what practical changes are are you willing to make this week? How are you going to live out your commitment to Jesus? How are you going to show it? By loving God's people. As we bring this to a close, I want to to pray in a moment, but I want to encourage you to start thinking, what's your next step? What needs to change? I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and just to, to give us some creative ideas 
of how we can be loving and committed to Christ and his church this week. This needs to be lived out. It needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be shown. Let's pray. Father, send your spirit now. Come Holy Spirit. Come and fill us. Come and speak to us. Perhaps bring conviction where we need to confess things that where we just not got it right. And then I pray, Holy Spirit, just give wisdom, godly wisdom, creative wisdom in these days. I want to encourage you to ask the question, Lord, what do I need to do this week? Who do I need to connect up with this week? Who do I practically need to show love to this week? And then, Father, I pray, help me, Lord, to be committed to you, committed to your church. We ask it in Jesus' name.